For a nation that prides itself on living well, we've paid very little attention to what it takes to die well. Dying well goes beyond insurance and health care. It requires participation, our participation, long before the end. As an aging society, we need to have candid conversations about mortality. Trade a little bit of that feel-good escapism for a healthy dose of death literacy. That will pay it forward. Hello, I'm Karen Martineau, founder of Bevival.com, and welcome to the Long Before the End podcast series. In this series, we're examining our relationship with mortality by exposing how death, the protagonist, is presented in contemporary literature. My hope is that these discussions will bring insight to your life as well as inspire your end-of-life narrative. Hi, I'm Michael Hamilton. And I'm Jed Beitler. Welcome to our third installment of the Long Before the End podcast series. Having received a number of positive reviews on iTunes, it's very rewarding to know that what we're doing is working for you. For example, JS writes, Very welcome addition to the world of podcasts. Given that death and taxes are the only certainties, so little is written and said about the Grim Reaper for all the obvious reasons. This series challenges one to think. Love the book under review, and promptly bought a copy. In this episode, we're going to focus in on how pervasive death denial is in modern society. It's only taken a little over 100 years for America's relationship with mortality to steadily decline into an abysmal state of death denial. Once we became estranged from the cycle of life, our fear of death rose. So we've selected White Noise by Don DeLillo because it's a cautionary tale about what happens when people are consumed by their fear of death. DeLillo said, we're all aware there's no escape from death. How do we deal with this crushing knowledge? We repress, we disguise, we bully, we exclude. By the time the author released this, his eighth novel, he already had a loyal following and great reviews. The New York Review of Books, for example, called DeLillo the chief shaman of the paranoid school of fiction. That's a that's an edgy description, but from everything I've read about DeLillo, he probably loved it. Yeah, DeLillo was a member of a pretty remarkable cohort of postmodernists. Warhol, Philip Dick, Talking Heads, Bowie, Cormac McCarthy, Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons, artists who tested the norm while satirizing consumerism. It's cultural alienation. White Noise is a satire about the effect of audio and visual pollution. It's a metaphor for the device we use to remove ourselves from the thoughts of our own mortality. And the cultural alienation you just referred to is why we've invited psychologist Dr. Dale Atkins and anthropologist Dr. Anita Hannig to share their thoughts with us. I'm going to start off with a quote that seems to hit the proverbial nail on the head. All the distractions we fill our lives with all the attempts to look cool, all the colorful products we like to buy, they're all just a way to keep ourselves from remembering that we're all going to die someday. I'm not sure I buy off on that allusion to consumerism. Sure, the characters are constantly assaulted by visual and audio noise, no different than we are today, but calling it consumerism, that's stretching it a bit. I'm sensing this comment hits too close to home. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I mean, having been in the advertising business for 25-plus years, 
This falls squarely in your domain. Uh, yours too, pal. You're just as guilty. You spent the first half of your career directing TV shows and commercials. We basically, we both got paid to persuade. Well, sure, when you're young, it feels good to be the talent, the hired gun. But after reading this book, I'm not so sure my early contribution to society was constructive. Listen, noise is absolutely a villain, but I just wouldn't call it consumerism. It's semantics, Jed. Look, consumerism is about supply and demand, buying and selling, products, ideas, experiences. Okay, okay, you've convinced me. Sensory overload does divert our attention away from things that we don't want to deal with. But what's wrong with distancing ourselves from reality now and then? Richard Powers, the revered American novelist, crystallized white noise for me when he said, at the book's heart is the naked question, what to do with a fear of death that leaves every human action doomed pathetic. And DeLillo has drawn some really peculiar, or maybe it's kinder to say, interesting cast of characters. Yeah, there's Jack Gladney, professor and department chair at the College on the Hill, his wife Babette, and Murray Siskin, his colleague and anecdotal spiritual guide. As the story begins, we learn Jack's crippling fear of death turned into a career win when he created the Hitler Studies program at College on the Hill. This brought great notoriety and distinction both to himself and the college. So while he's in class, Jack's smart, pragmatic wife, Babette, bides her time reading to the blind and teaching a class to seniors, as in old folks, on correct posture. They are both so neurotically preoccupied with death that their interactions are comical. In fact, the book is filled with death comedy. Take Murray, for example. He's an ex-sports reporter who reinvented himself as a college professor. And he believes pretty much everything humans do is designed to hide the fact they're going to die one day. Murray even compares something as mundane as a supermarket to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And in their parallel universe, the supermarket becomes a secular church of sorts, a symbol of influence and information, a place where one would find nourishment for both the body and the soul. There's this one scene that's certainly death denial in action where Murray is walking down the dairy aisle saying, here we don't die, we shop. And during a philosophic walk around campus, Murray challenges Jack with, true or false, a person has to be told he's going to die before he can live life to the fullest. How we can live life to the fullest is one of the questions we asked Dr. Dale Atkins, psychologist, well-known lecturer, author, and relationship expert. Hello, Dale. Hello, Michael. Thanks so much for joining our discussion. I'm thrilled to be with you and very much look forward to talking about this topic. Hello, Dr. Atkins. I'd like to start off by asking you how the collective denial of mortality has affected our culture. I think that what we're experiencing with this general malaise and a sense of unhappiness stems from a lack of purpose. People don't feel that they have meaning in their lives. Even though they go to work and they perform roles within families and their communities, very often they're so disconnected from the arc of living, and part of the arc of living is dying and the inevitability of dying. How do you think the fear of death is demonstrated in our culture? Very often, as with death, elderly people are out of sight. When you get very old and very ill, you are often warehoused. 
we don't live in in communities, intergenerational communities very much anymore. We don't see people getting older. We just see the effects of their being old. And we don't understand it. We don't have patience for it. We have so much, yet our culture never seems to be satiated. It's always more, new, better, different. Can you explain the psychological effect this has had on our population? Yes, I think it has added to the disconnection. I think that the incredible materialism imposes itself and distracts people from being able to have very honest and deep human relationships because so many mental and emotional distresses have their roots in fear of death. So many. That really, that really resonates with me. I, I, I want to expand on that, really. So, Dr. Atkins, as the population ages, do you think the wellness and mindfulness movement is awakening us to our impermanence? Yes, I do. I think that to your specific point, there is an awareness that if we're present, we can enjoy our life and be aware of our life in a much more meaningful way. And we know that, you know, there are studies of people as they get older, they often become less fearful of death because they are much more aware that the time that they have is less and they want to live a more high-quality life instead of avoiding delving into it, allowing the experience to guide you to reflect on one's life, to reflect on where one is. This calms us, and it often helps us to deal with the fear of death, which many of us have. So passing along the legacy, you've got a book that's about to be published called The Kindness Advantage. Why did you write a book about kindness? My niece and I, Amanda Solvell, wrote The Kindness Advantage, and the subtitle is cultivating compassionate and connected children. The reason we wrote the book is because we see this lacking today. Within the context of death and dying and aging, so many people are afraid to connect, to talk about, and it's one of the reasons I think revival is so important and the whole world of death literacy that we can create a language that we can feel more comfortable in areas that have been uncomfortable, that have been taboo. I mean, so many people find it taboo to even talk about death and consequently are afraid to be kind to those who are facing death or those who are even thinking about it. Oh, don't talk about it. Don't think about it. It's depressing. Well, if that's where someone is, and that's what someone needs to discuss. The kind thing, the compassionate thing, is to allow that person to talk, to write, to just be in that space, rather than because of our own fear, our own discomfort, hurry them away, distract them. And so I find that there is such a lack of kindness. And I don't believe that it is intentionally done to be mean. I just think so many of us can't tolerate being in a space that is so unknown and uncomfortable. In White Noise, which was written in 1985, 
there's a corollary between, it seems, the fictional pollution in, in the book and our current experience. They, they seem identical. So as a therapist, how would you introduce the value of death literacy to your clients if you look at it from that perspective? As I mentioned before, anything that's secretive or hidden is scary. You know, where do these ideas come from? I find sometimes that my role is to help people rehearse what they'd like to say and how they'd like to say it because previously tried techniques haven't worked. Yeah, no, that's really good, is the rehearsal, which is exactly what death literacy is. It's a lifetime of practicing. So by the time you arrive at that moment, you've been able to reduce the discomfort. DeLillo wrote, if death can be seen as less strange and unreferenced, your sense of self in relation to death will diminish, and so will your fear. To illustrate his point, he places the characters and readers in a generic American college town during a single academic year. The author dedicates the first part of the book to establishing the characters' interrelationships. But the story then transitions. In the second half of the book, a train derails, releasing a cloud of toxic gas. With the advent of this airborne toxic event, as DeLillo fondly refers to it, all hell breaks loose and both Jack and Babette are forced to come face to face with their worst fears. To understand the evolution of how our culture developed death phobia, we had a conversation with Dr. Anita Hanick, professor of anthropology. She studies death and dying from a cultural perspective and teaches a course entitled Anthropology of Death and Dying at Brandeis University. Welcome, Dr. Hanick. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, it's great for you to join us. So as a researcher, you study our cultural approach to death. In other words, how we come to death and dying today. How did this all start? Was it a personal experience? Yeah, so, so I'm a medical anthropologist, so that means I study the cultural and social dimensions of medicine. I mean, in the contemporary United States, death and dying really are not popular topics of conversation. I think such talk is often labeled as morbid or somehow even pathological. And, um, and I think that it was really important to me to try to break through the silence and avoidance that shape contemporary American attitudes. And I think that teaching young people different ways to engage with the end of life can be really productive. And I think it is a way of not shielding them from the specter of mortality or of death, um, but of really giving them the space and the tools to really explore their own relationship to the end of life and what that looks like for them. I think that's great motivation for why you wanted it to develop the course, why do you think the students wanted to take the course? Well, I think students are really hungry for topics that they perceive to be taboo. And, and I do think many also had very interesting personal reasons to take the class. So maybe there was some undigested grief. Maybe they wanted to learn more about different ways of mourning, honoring the dead. And some, honestly, frankly, had no idea what they were getting themselves into. So if you, if you think of, uh, if you look at the perspective of the course from the long-term impact in an ideal world, what, what would you like the students to glean and achieve from taking it? Well, my hope is really that um, by taking a class like that, they would maybe regain a broader societal knowledge of death and to be able to talk about their mortality, their family's mortality, in a way that would really improve 
things like grief counseling, hospice care, um, the way that people have those conversations inside the family. And, I mean, at the end of the day, death is the great equalizer. It will happen to everyone. And you can try to escape it, but you won't get very far. So I, so I thought, why not engage with it? You know, this is the generation that will take care of aging parents who live longer than they ever have before. So why not give them the tools to face these challenges in a realistic way um, where they know what's coming and where death, while still being a mystery, of course, is, is something that, um, that is less taboo in a way. America is a nation of immigrants, and, and they've arrived on our shores with a myriad customs and rituals. How do you think the assimilation altered our relationship with mortality over time? That's a really interesting question. One way to answer that question would be to think through secularization and some of the shifts we've seen in the way that people think about their mortality and how to make sense of it. So there's a certain vacuum that I think is emerging, and I've heard this especially sort of in the western part of the country, the you know the old or new frontier, where a lot of people are turning their back to organized religion, and and sometimes there isn't anything that kind of fills that gap of really making sense of death and of mourning. And there are a lot of life celebrants that I've recently spoken to who are kind of trying to encourage families to fill that gap again with coming up with rituals on their own or with finding different ways of honoring the deceased, even if it is outside of, you know, formal uh, funeral services that now are often meaningless to people who, who let's say, are not believers. So, so were you saying that basically that people were recognizing that organized religion wasn't playing a part in answering that big question, what happens to me when I die? Absolutely. I think that religion and spirituality in general really provides a structured framework for what happens to people when they die. Because any death can threaten the continuity of a community, right? In, in grief, a community might fall apart, but religion kind of brings everybody back together and also provides a framework under which people can make sense of death, of the afterlife, of things like that. You talked before about rituals. Can you talk about how other cultures or societies embrace end of life as part of that whole life process? It's really this notion of letting go that I think is really built into the way that a lot of cultures deal with death. And some of that can be by bringing death into life in a much more present way. So there's um, a group of people in West Papua, Indonesia, known as the Korowai, where death and dying is something that people bring up in everyday conversation. So people will, older men will often spontaneously go into song about their upcoming death. Or when people meet each other on fourth path, they will say, oh, I thought you had died or, oh, I was expecting you to be dead. Um, and it's not rude or anything to say that. It's built into this idea of your inevitable mortality and of knowing that and of um, constructing your life in a way that's not pushed that kind of awareness to the margins. And I think in our country, death has become so medicalized that it is sometimes really seen as a failure rather than this expected stage of life. This reminds me, you know, when I read your article talking about uh, death in American anthropologist view, there was one specific quote that stuck out for me, which was just look at the plethora of contemporary fantasies of immortality. So in essence, your research supports DeLillo's fictional version of the future, where stopping the clock has become 
at least a very profitable business and an effort to move death denial to, towards death literacy. Do you see a shift, whether it's subtle or otherwise? Jared Stark, who's a professor of comparative literature at Eckerd College, he's coined the term post-natural death. What he means by that is that today in our hemisphere, natural or necessary death seems to be increasingly damaging. So that means we can time our death. Death is no longer a matter of fate or nature. And many life-prolonging measures aren't even seen as interferences anymore with natural death. So, for instance, we see the emergence of death cafes, which are social events where people gather to have structured discussions about the end of life. We see more attention being paid to advanced directives or living wills, where people specify in advance what kind of medical procedures they want done at the end of life. The emergence of death doulas in hospice. And I think there's also an explosion of magazine articles and books around death And I do think that these things are really indicative of a cultural shift. And another um, French historian, Philippe Aris, comes to mind, who says that since the late 19th century and early 20th century, there has been a radical shift in the way that we perceive death, and he calls that invisible death. And what he means by that is that we have an increasing distance of the community from dying, that nature has been conquered, that death becomes increasingly surrounded by discomfort and even repulsion, and that it is concealed in hospitals and nursing homes on hospice, and that it is managed technocratically. And he says, quote, death no longer belongs to the dying man. So I know you're an avid rock climber. What do you think the connection is between the, let's say, risky outdoor adventures and people's sense of their mortality? Well, I think these kinds of quests really have to do with us pushing the envelope on our mortality. We live in a society where most people no longer face any real threats from war or sudden incurable illness. Life is a lot less precarious than it was 100 years ago. And I do think people try to escape the numbness of their risk-free lives by engaging in very risky outdoor adventures that really bring them in touch with their mortality. Over the course of many decades, we've come to rely on medical technology to extend life offer a fix or a cure. And walking away from a brush with death was the goal. How many people do we know who've had a brush with death? While gratefully they recovered, that brush with mortality didn't change their perspective. They reverted right back into a state of death denial. Isn't that barrier just another form of white noise? Look around, then look closer. Death denial is right here, hidden in plain sight. It's the white noise we've grown accustomed to, the companion that shields us from fear, the villain that whispers, don't think about it, don't talk about it, it will go away. No, it won't. What is true at this very moment in time is that death literacy is the only thing that will teach us how to better live our lives. To learn more about death literacy, and the Long Before the End book group, go to Bevival.com. We hope we've piqued your interest in this book. You can let us know we're doing a good job by rating this podcast on iTunes and Google Play. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.